Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location in Belmont, Massachusetts. My name is Brian, I pastor that location, and it's good to talk to you again. We all know what it's like to be thirsty, don't we? To really need a drink. And we know the best thing to drink when we're thirsty is water. But all of us know what it's like not just to be physically thirsty, we know what it's like to be spiritually thirsty too. To long for something bigger than ourselves. So where do you go when you are spiritually thirsty? We're going to talk about that today. Pastor Rick Piccarello, the senior pastor of Mount Hope and the pastor of our Burlington location, delivers this message. So I hope you enjoy it and I hope you listen closely because I believe that God has something he would like to say to you. If you have a, a Bible, a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to John chapter 7 this morning. If you don't have one with you, there should be one in a chair not far from you, hopefully, and uh, you can flip over. If you don't know where John 7 is, just look in the table of contents there in the front, John 7, and uh, that's where we'll be this morning. If you're new to Mount Hope, uh, we believe that uh, this Bible it's not just a book, it's God's word to us. And so every Sunday as we gather here, we gather to listen, to read, and to hear what God would say to us through his word. And so that's what we do at this point in the service. We look into it, read it together, and uh, listen to what God would say to us. So we've been walking through the gospel of John. A gospel is an account of the life, death, resurrection, and teaching of Jesus Christ, and we've been walking through that together as a church here in Belmont and in Burlington. And so John chapter 7, that's what we're getting into this morning. As we get there, um, and as you're turning there, you know, in a room like this, almost in any room, I find there's two types of people that are present. I always forget you guys are up there. Hello in the balcony. I'm sorry, we don't have a balcony in Burlington, and I forget to lift my eyes up sometimes. Good to see you guys today. Uh, hey, John. Uh, but uh, so in a room like this, I always find there's at least two groups of people that are here. There are the groups who, the people who love to be called on and participate when they get into a large group event. And there are the people who hate to be called on and participate when they're in a room like this. I liken it to the fact to like when my wife and I go to a sporting event, a major sporting event, we have two very different goals when Wendy and I go to a major sporting event. My goal is to go, enjoy the game, watch it, and leave. My wife, Wendy, has a very different goal. Her goal, regardless of the game, regardless of the sporting event, regardless of what's going on there, is to find a way to get on the jumbotron. And she will jump up and down. She will dance. She will do whatever you need to do to try and get on there. And she's gotten on there a couple times uh, when we go to different things. So show of hands, who is like Wendy? When you go to a sporting event, that's you. You want to be on the jumbotron. You want to be a part of things. Oh, she is alone. Just Eric and, and Joe. That's it. How many of you are like me? You're like, nope, I just want to. Yeah, the rest of you, right? And the rest, some of you are so shy. You don't even want to put your hand in the air. They're like, I don't know what I'm raising my hand for, and I don't want you calling on me. All right, well, here's the deal. This morning's message is going to be a little bit participatory. So I'm going to need some help. So I'm going to need more than Eric, who just raised his hand. I'm going to need a few people to help me. As a part of this message in a few minutes, 
Uh, and so I'm going to need some people who are going to help. So I'm going to need some different characters who are going to play out parts in this story, all right? Uh, you're not going to have to do anything crazy. You're not going to do anything crazy, embarrassing, or anything like that. But I just need you to kind of help me out. So I need, uh, who's willing to help out? Who's, who's going to put your hand in the air and you're willing to help? I, now, there's a few people I know in this room, and I will call on you if I need to. But uh, who is willing to help? I need someone who's going to be a Thomas. All right, Thomas, I'm going to have you uh, take this card here. You keep that to yourself right now, and you're gonna, I'm going to need you later. I'm going to need someone who is, I need a couple people who are willing to stand in as a choir. Who's willing to stand in as a choir? Okay, Laura, who else? I need someone else that will, Janet, will you stand in as a choir because you're sitting near her? You don't have to sing loud, okay? All right, I promise you, you won't. You just have to recite a scripture. And anyone else who wants to stand in as a choir, you can come and sit in a little over this area. I'm going to need you later for that. Um, I need someone who will be a priest. Who will be a priest for me? Eric, okay, I'm going to use you as one. I'll need you in a few minutes. I need another priest. I need a second priest. All right, Joe, we're going to use you as the second priest. And then I need, what else do I need? I need a few guys. Because this involves specifically men. I need three men who will be a part of this as well. Who are my three men? Who's going to be a part of this? Come on, guys. It's Father's Day. All right. Okay. The three men, I don't know who it's going to be. You're going to get an orange. All right. Who's going to do it? All right. I'm not, you, she's volunteering you. You're going to take the orange? All right. You're taking the orange. All right. Bill? Oh, sorry. You're volunteering. Taking the orange. Uh, you need a couple little pieces of branches here. It's the best I could do. I stole some grass from Burlington when I was there this morning. Um, I didn't want to take it from here. Uh, so, all right, I've got my man. And now I need one more, I think. I need someone who will be a trumpet blower. I don't have a real trumpet for you. You have to pretend to blow a trumpet. Who is going to be my pretend trumpet blower? I need some. Eric, you're already a priest, man. I can't have you blowing the trumpet, too. I need someone else who is going to, who, who, who can do a good doo, 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 like that? Who can do that for me? Uh, I'm going to call someone out. Alex, you're blowing a trumpet for me. Alex, you're going to be my trumpet blower. I just need a good doo, 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 like something like that. You're going to be my trumpet. All right. Let me see if I've cast everybody here now. Let's see. I got two priests. I got a trumpet blower. I got some men, choir. One more character. All right, everyone else, you're the crowd. You're all the crowd, okay? You're going to be the crowd. All right, I'm coming back to all this later. Give me a minute, and I, this will all come together and make some sense. Here it is, John chapter 7. Here's what's going on. We have some confusion going on in John chapter 7, and here's the confusion. The confusion is, who is Jesus? That's the confusion that's going on. It's going on a lot throughout the Gospel of John, but in chapter 7 specifically, we've got a lot of confusion about who Jesus is. And you say, well, how can there be confusion about who Jesus is? Well, think about this. 2,000 years ago, this is, the, this is the context of what's going on. 2,000 years ago, no internet, no video, not even a daily newspaper, right? So you've got anything that's going on even in a city, a nation as small as Israel, even in a city as small as Jerusalem, you are getting the news 
from someone who heard it from someone who heard it from someone. There's no 24-hour news cycle. So if you are in the time of Jesus and, you know, talking about the Gospel of John, maybe you had a friend who had a friend who was at the place when Jesus multiplied food and fed thousands of people. And you heard about this guy. Maybe you worked with someone in the marketplace who has a child, who's friends with a child, who knows the child, who brought the bread and fish to the time when Jesus multiplied the food. Maybe you have a friend that goes down to the pool at Bethesda and she brings leftovers to the lame and the crippled that are at Bethesda And she said, you know, there's this guy who is there almost every time I go. He's been there for years, but he's not there anymore. And some people say that he was healed. I don't know. I just haven't seen him. Maybe you thought you saw Jesus in the marketplace, but you can't be sure if it was him. You have a friend that said, you know, I heard him teach once, and he taught like no one else has ever taught. But this is how you're getting the news. And you're starting and trying to put the pieces together. And then you go to the synagogue and you hear about some of the religious leaders who are saying that there's something dangerous about this Jesus. In fact, there's talk that they not only want to talk to him, some say they want to arrest him. There's even talk that people want to kill him. And you're getting all these bits and pieces and you're trying to figure out who this Jesus is. And so we come to chapter 7. It's no surprise that you have a lot of confusion about who Jesus is. Here's some of the scriptures in chapter 7. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. So you have his brothers are saying, look, you have to make yourself a public figure. You have to let people know you're here. Go up to Judea. Go up to the big feast and show yourself. Reveal yourself to people. And then later on in chapter 7, it says, and there was much muttering about him among the people. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Who is this man? Among the middle of the feast, Jesus went up and into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied. There's confusion about him. He's never been to our schools. We've never seen him in our schools. How can he have this much learning? There's a lot of confusion about him. The crowd answered, you have a demon. As Jesus was teaching, they said he's talking about people who are seeking to kill him, and the crowd says, you have a demon. So now people are saying Jesus is demon-possessed. A good man leading people astray, someone who needs to become a public figure, a demon-possessed person. Some of the people in Jerusalem, therefore, said, is this not the man they seek to kill? In other words, he's someone that needs to be gone. And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him, meaning the religious rulers. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Some people are saying he is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, the one who's going to save us. And yet many people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, 
will he do more signs than this man has done. He's a sign worker. He's a miracle worker. And in this one little chapter, you see a lot of different perspectives of who people think Jesus is. All the way on the spectrum from a savior to demon-possessed. And everywhere in between. If we went out in Waverly Square this morning and said, who is Jesus? Just to a bunch of people who are walking around, waiting for the bus or waiting for the train. I think we probably get at least that variety of answers. Maybe he's a good man. No, he leads people astray. He's a cult leader. He's demon-possessed. He's Savior. He's Lord. You'd probably find a lot of confusion. And that's exactly what was taking place in Jesus' day. So how do you clear up the confusion? Jesus actually does clear up the confusion, but in order to understand what he does and how he does that, you have to understand the context of chapter 7 and what's going on. And that's what I want to spend a few minutes looking at this morning. Here's the deal. Jesus and John often clears up who he is and his identity by explaining something and he connects it to a major event in the life of the Jewish people, usually one of the major feasts. So if you were here last week, Pastor Brian spoke on Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life. But the context of that statement was a major Jewish feast, a spring feast called the Passover. Some of you may be familiar with that. You have Jewish friends, maybe. They still celebrate the Passover feast today. It's why when you walk into Market Basket in March or April, you'll see a table, and it'll have the matzah crackers on it and, and a bunch of other things, and it'll say Passover on it or Happy Passover on it, which is a strange expression for what Passover celebrates, but Happy Passover on it. But it'll say that on there, and, and you'll see all these things that are on there. It's a feast the Jews still celebrate. And in Jesus' day, one of the things the feasts of Passover remembered was the way God miraculously provided bread for his people when they were wandering through the desert for 40 years. Imagine nearly somewhere between a million and two million people wandering through the wilderness. Wandering. They're moving constantly, right? Right? So they don't have time to plant. They don't have time to harvest. They can't crush wheat and bake bread. So how will they eat for 40 years as they go through? God miraculously provides for them bread every day, six days a week. Calls it manna. The people call it manna. It provides it six days a week because on the seventh day they weren't supposed to work. And so God provided a double portion on the sixth day so that they could eat for the sixth and seventh day miraculously provides this bread for 40 years every single day until they move into the land God had called them to. And so at the Passover feast in Jesus' day, they'd remember this bread. And so when Jesus stands up and says, I am the bread of life, he's saying it in the context of them understanding that they've been remembering bread that God had provided during this feast and this festival. As we come to chapter 7, there's another feast going on. Not a spring feast, this is a fall feast. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles, also still celebrated by Jewish people today. 
In fact, this year, 2018, it falls September 23rd to September 30th. And it's still celebrated by Jewish people today. What it remembers is that same journey through the wilderness for 40 years, but a tabernacle is like a booth or a temporary house. And for 40 years, if you're moving constantly, you've got to construct a temporary structure for you to live every time you you move there. And so they would construct temporary structures, and during this feast, when they remember it, they do build these kind of tabernacles, booths, or like tents nowadays to remember it. In fact, if you were to go to our Burlington location this year between the dates of September 23rd to September 30th, and before you turned on to McGinnis Drive in Burlington, you looked across the street, you would see Temple Shalom Emeth, and during this feast, every year in the back of their parking lot, they construct a booth like this, and you would know that they are celebrating the feast of tabernacles. It was a feast that looked backwards and it looked forwards to what God was doing. Now, you may know all that. If you have some Jewish friends or if you've been in church a while, you may be familiar with the Feast of Tabernacles, perhaps, or booths. And that's the feast that's going on that Jesus is talking about. But what you may not know, what I didn't know, even after years of theological education, what I had no idea about is that with the Feast of Tabernacles in Jesus' day, there was something, there was a water rite or a water ritual that became associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. And there was an there was a aspect of the water that looked back again to where God had provided for his people in the wilderness at times bringing water out of a rock. Scriptures like Isaiah were remembered. It says, with joy, you draw water from the wells of salvation. Reminded the people of God's provision of water, not only physically, but spiritually. But then it also looked forward to the day where God would provide living water, where God would provide a river of water out of Jerusalem that would go out to the nations. So there was this aspect of the feast that had this water ritual to it. And here's how it went. This is where I'm going to need some help this morning. This is where I'm going to need you guys that are playing some parts. Let's just talk about what would happen during this water ritual. So Eric has left the room. I have lost one of my priests. I need another priest. Ting, I'm going to need you to bring another priest. All right, stay right there. You're in perfect position for where the priest should be right now. Okay, we are going to carry out a little bit. I'm just going to act out a little bit of, I want you to see some of the different aspects of this water ritual. So the feast is seven days long, eight days long. I'll tell you about that in a minute, but seven days long for the most part. Um, And every day the multitudes would gather. And they would gather. I need my other priest to come up. Joe, you're the other priest, right? You need to come up here. I don't have any priestly garments for you, but you're going to need, you don't just stand right here in the middle. You, actually, I think that's exactly how the priests would have been dressed anyway. You, you must have known them. Yeah, they're at, they, they frequent the Outer Banks. Um, but they, so you got, so here's, here's how the ritual would go. Every seven days, for seven days, every day, they would carry out an aspect of this feast. So the crowd would watch. 
and uh, the trumpet would blow. Pretty good trumpet, Alex. There you go. And then a priest would bring a pitcher of water. Ting, I think you'll find a pitcher of water on a table back there. You would bring a pitcher of water. Well, not if you're careful. Um, You would bring a pitcher. One priest would bring a pitcher of water. As the priest processed around to the altar with the water, you're going to bring the priest and you're going to give it to the other priest, the pitcher of water. The crowd is rejoicing. And now the choir is singing. Our choir is singing the Hillel Psalms. You can sit down, Ting. Your job's done. The choir is singing the Hillel Psalms. They come to Psalm 118, and they sing... So they would sing many of these Hillel Psalms and concluding in Psalm 118 with the Hillel Psalm and the end of Psalm 118, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. And then at this point, every male pilgrim who is there, they have in their right hand a a, a uh, the left, the right hand has the twigs. So you guys stand up for a second. You have your twigs in your right hand. And in the left hand, you have citrus fruit. And you are just waving these and shaking these. Good job. All right, you guys can sit down, guys. Because you are remembering the water that God has provided that brings you a harvest. That brings a harvest, right? The water God provided brings fruit, allows the land to grow, allows, allows there to be fruitfulness. And then the choir's singing, the trumpets blowing, the guys are waving. The priest pours the water into a silver bowl, pours it out as an offering to God. And then it is poured out. This part I'm not going to do. He would pour it out again out of the silver bowl. We're not going to get the floor wet. Pastor Brian would kill me. You're good. You can, you can sit. Yeah, you're good. I didn't make you walk around the altar, but you're good. The priest would walk around the altar, and they'd pour it out of the bowl. And this would be a golden uh, uh, pitcher. I didn't have a golden pitcher, surprisingly. Um, and they'd pour it out as an offering. And here's what would happen, that they would do this for every day for seven days. And they would have this water rite. And, they would, and the crowd would gather. The trumpet would blow. The choir would sing. The men would, offer, would, would have the offerings that they would recognize before the Lord. The water would come forward. The priest would pour it out. And it would be poured out before the people. And they'd celebrate looking back and looking forward to what God had done. They do it every day for seven days, except on the seventh day. On the seventh day, they would do it seven times. And they would do it seven times. And this was a great feast. Every, almost everyone came. It was a celebratory feast. Everyone was present and everyone would come for it. And they would do it every day for seven days. And on the seventh day, they would do it seven times. And then in chapter 7, Verse 37 of the Gospel of John, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And Jesus stands up and cries out and says these words. And when you and I read them in our context, apart from what's going on, 
they have some meaning. But if you think about what was going on at the time, when he stands up, and it says he did it on the great day, the last day of the feast. There's a little bit of, you're good, Eric. You're all set, man. Thank you. Um, he says he did it on the last day, the great day of the feast. There's some confusion about whether that was the seventh day or the eighth day. If it was the seventh day, that means water had just been poured out seven times. If it was the eighth day, it was the Sabbath, and that meant on the Sabbath day, no water was poured out. It's hard to know exactly what they were considering the last day of the feast at that point, but either day you can understand how powerful a statement that would have been because the people are coming and they're looking at this water ritual day after day after day after day and they're looking and saying, God's gonna send rivers of water. He's gonna send a savior. The waters, the rivers of water are gonna flow out of our city. God is going to send us something. And they're looking forward to it. And, they're looking, and then Jesus stands up after it's all over and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And in that moment, He's not just making a declaration about who he is, though he's doing that in kind of a veiled way because he's saying, look, this water that you're talking about, this water that you're, this water, I am this water. I'm the one you've been waiting for. He's saying that, but he's doing something else. He's not just making a declaration. He's giving an invitation. He's saying, if you're thirsty, come to me, and drink. Now think about that statement for a minute. It's a metaphor that he uses. Think about how you feel when you're physically thirsty. When you are physically thirsty, you can think of almost nothing else. When you are physically thirsty, no matter what else is going on, what's always on your mind is where can I get a drink? Last summer, my family and I were in Washington, D.C. in August. How many of you have been in Washington, D.C. in August? Anyone been there? Yeah. I don't know what it was like when you were there. I can guarantee it was hot because Washington, D.C. is built on a swamp. And when you are there in August, it is hot. And we're walking around the National Mall and we're going to museums and we're doing all of that and we are thirsty. And I see a guy with a shopping cart selling ice-cold Gatorades. I would have paid anything. I don't care what he was asking. Thankfully, he was only asking a buck a Gatorade. And we bought many Gatorades from that man. When you are thirsty, it's all you can think about. When you are thirsty and you are at a hot game at Fenway Park, you will pay $5 for a 24-ounce bottle of water. Now, if you go to the grocery store, you can get 24 12-ounce bottles of water for $2.99. Now, I did the math. A gallon of the Fenway Park water costs you $12.50. A gallon of the grocery store water costs you 62 cents. Why would you pay $12.50 for something you can get for 62 cents? There's only one reason, because you're thirsty. And when you are thirsty, you can think of almost nothing else because you're thirsty. You're focused on that. 
You're thinking about that. In fact, your body physically tells you not to think about anything else. Your body starts to shut down. Your, your blood starts to get thicker. The passages start to constrict. It gets harder to pump the blood. Your brain actually shrinks a little bit because you are so focused. Your kidneys start to retain water. And your body is telling you, we need to be hydrated. It's going to be 95 degrees tomorrow. At some point, you're probably going to be thirsty. Jesus is just saying the same thing spiritually. If you are spiritually thirsty, you don't need someone to tell you you're thirsty. I'm not here this morning to convince you or not convince you that you are spiritually thirsty or not. Because Jesus says, if you are thirsty, come to me and drink. The person who's spiritually thirsty knows she's spiritually thirsty. She's been looking for places to quench her thirst. He's tried many places to quench and find this fulfillment to look for a savior, to look for something that is going to provide sustained fulfillment in life. We look at all kinds of things to quench our thirst. Relationships, money, entertainment, alcohol, achievement, position, possessions, people. And they work for a little while. And my thirst is quenched for a short time. But I think a lot of times those things are kind of like peanuts and pretzels where soda seems to quench the thirst, seems to help, maybe more like salt water, but it doesn't help. In fact, in the long run, it just makes you more thirsty. And Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I'm not here this morning to convince you that you're thirsty. It's a declaration, but it's also an invitation. Are you thirsty? Jesus gives an invitation to you not only to come if you are thirsty and drink, but he extends even more than that. The rest of the scripture says this. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. And so he's saying, look, you come to this festival and you're looking forward to this time where rivers of living water are going to flow out of this city. The truth is, when you come to me and believe, rivers of living water will flow out of you. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, John provides some commentary right afterwards. He says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Jesus is saying, when you come to me, when you believe, God's Holy Spirit, we sang about it a few minutes ago, God's Holy Spirit will come and take up residence in you, will live in you, and will flow out of you. So here's the thing. Here's what Jesus is saying. When you come to Jesus, you are called not to be a receptacle, but a river. You are called not to be a cistern, but a culvert. 
That it's not I come to Jesus and I just get filled up and God give me everything you have for me and it's me and Jesus and it's all that. Jesus is saying, no, when you come, you come and God puts his spirit in you so that it can flow through you. It is not so that we can sit in a room here on Sunday mornings and sing these wonderful songs and keep this to ourselves and then go out of this place and it not have an effect on Belmont and the towns you live in and the world around us. The exact opposite. Jesus says, come to me, drink, have your thirst satisfied, but then let that river flow through you to the world around you. That you might be a river, not a receptacle, and a culvert, not a cistern. Jesus calls you not only to come and drink, but to refresh others with what you have received. I'm not here to convince you that you're thirsty. Jesus wasn't trying to convince people they were thirsty. If you're thirsty, then you know you're thirsty. I'm not here to convince you of a doctrine or a dogma. Come here and believe this is true about Jesus or believe that. I'm not here... That's not what this passage does. That's not what this chapter does. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is simply giving an invitation. Are you thirsty? Are you looking for something to satisfy a spiritual thirst within you and you know you have it? You know you need something. You know you need fulfillment. You know you need an answer. You know you need assurance. You know you need something in your life that this world has not provided. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come and drink. C.S. Lewis said, If you have a desire that is not fulfilled by the things of this world, it's likely because you were not created for this world, that that desire is not met in this world. That desire is met for things that are outside of this world. I think we sometimes come to God and we come in a room like this and we come to church and we we can sometimes feel bored by the things of God. Dorothy Sayers, in a quote that I love in uh, one of her books, says this. She says, The dogma we find so dull, this terrifying drama of which God is the victim and hero. If this is dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? The people who hanged Christ never, to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently paired the cause of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Those who knew him, however, objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. You come to church today, I'm not here to convince you of a doctrine. I'm not here to convince you of a dogma. I'm not here to convince you of some some doctrine that you put on a shelf and believe somewhere. This is about Jesus standing up in the midst of this feast of thousands of people and saying he is what they have been looking for. It was controversial, at least. They wanted to kill him because of it. Because he's saying, what you're looking for, what you're thirsty for, that he is the answer to that. 
So this morning, as we close out and respond to God's word together, I'll ask our music ministry to return um, as we respond to God's word this morning. And the response that I offer, I don't want to complicate it any more than Jesus' words. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come and drink. If you're thirsty, come and drink. If you're thirsty, you don't need someone to convince you you're thirsty. You know it. You're here. You walked in this building today because you're looking for something that you weren't able to find outside of this place. You walked in here on a beautiful Sunday morning because you're looking for something that you have not yet found anywhere else. And you've tried some of the things of this world and you've tried what people have offered you and you've tried, you know, the things that that offer some temporary relief of your thirst. But you walked in here this morning because you're still thirsty. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come and drink. And what's that mean? It means what we've said again and again through this gospel of John as we walk through it. Believe. Receive. Trust Jesus. Trust that he is who he says he is. Trust that he's God. And that as you put your life in his hands, that he will lead you in the ways of all truth, that he will give you, as we talked about last week, eternal life, that he will be that sustenance and quench that thirst that you've been looking for. So as our music ministry plays, and I'm going to pray, I'm just going to invite you to take a few minutes to respond in whatever way God would lead you. Maybe you want to come and you want to pray at this altar, and if you do, someone will come and pray with you. Maybe you want to stay right in your seat and kneel or sit and allow God to speak to you. But we come to this point. We come to God's word in order to respond to God's word, not to learn something, not to just intake information, but to be changed by hearing and understanding what God says to us. And so how will you change? What's your application? Have you had your thirst quenched by Jesus or are you still thirsty? Maybe it was years ago that you first came to Jesus and your road and your path has diverged at some point. Come back to him today. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Come and receive from him. Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for the truth of it as we do every week. But Lord, more than anything this morning, I thank you for the invitation because it is an audacious invitation that the creator of all, that the God of the universe would say, come, come receive from me. Come receive what you've been looking for. Come and I will give you what your heart has been searching for all these years and all your life. Come to me. Put your life in my hands.
and I will lead you. God, it's an audacious invitation that you offer us. Father, would you give us the courage to respond and to drink of what you offer? In Jesus' name, lead us as we respond today. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 10 a.m. and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at mthopebelmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.